Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast, this episode recorded on Friday the 2nd of June 2023. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. And I'm Hugh Broom. This week, with new season prices now unveiled, how should you best secure your fertiliser requirements? On the markets, we talk to the European tractor maker who's returning to the Lammer Show. We find out who farmers think is best to run the countryside... And for the first time at a new venue, we preview this month's cereals event. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, a former UK government advisor has warned that food security is likely to remain a challenge for years to come. Professor Tim Benton says the government recognises the impact food inflation is having on the national economy, but he says ministers need to be thinking more strategically, and that leaves farmers in a difficult position. UK farmers are in a really difficult situation at the moment. We've got volatile market prices, we've got government saying you've got to be business, more business orientated and then turning around and saying, well, we're going to put in price support at one level. Uh, subsidies are coming off. Uh, you know, the, the market forces means that, you know, livelihoods, particularly for small and family farms, are really, really difficult. And you throw on top of that climate change and droughts and extreme weather and uh, heat waves and all the rest of that, you know, making a living as a farmer is really, really difficult. What should farmers be doing in terms of managing their farm business and looking to the future and things that are coming down the line? In the medium to long term, our kind of industrialised, large-scale farming, primarily for export, is probably not strong enough, not resilient enough to, to drive the pressures. Many of my colleagues, and I live in a rural environment in Yorkshire, many of my colleagues are moving towards growing less but trying to hit premium markets or diversifying in multiple ways. Broadly, anything that can build resilience in terms of diversification, better soil management, etc., but all of those things come with a cost. So you need, therefore, if you're going to be growing in a different way and perhaps growing less, you need to be accessing premium markets. And, you know, in livestock, that's fewer, slower growing, extensive, you know, stuff that you can put a badge on that this is high quality, high price. But for most arable farmers, just going into a generic grain market, that's really difficult. You seem to be saying go for quality, not quantity. Yeah, I think that's probably the best, the best hedge at the moment. But again, if you're a generic arable farmer... You know, yes, you can go for some of the, the, the interesting bread wheats, etc., etc., but that doesn't solve the fundamentals of the market, which is you're not paid enough to make a living and you're not paid enough to farm in a way that is sustainable in the long run. That might come as a surprise to some farmers, especially larger farmers, who feel that they do have the economies of scale to be able to compete on a global market with uh, things like cereals and commodities, but you think perhaps not? Well, no, they can... At the moment, the bigger the farm, the easier, the easier it, it becomes. But in the long run, the volatility of, as we have seen since 2022, the, long run, the volatility of the global markets and what that means and the degree to which diets in, in decades to come will still be based on the same major commodity crops, the relatively few on a global basis that are grown at scale, and who's buying those and uh, what are the regulations around that and where is the geopolitics, you know, what, ha- what would happen if China made a move on Taiwan and uh, Russia escalated the war in Ukraine? We'd be back in that situation of 2022, but worse in terms of volatility, input prices, you know, uh, market fracturing, etc., etc. That's food security expert Tim Benton. 
So, Johan, this is a, a, a small, compact and bijou, but nevertheless important little event, which just uh, happens every year. Yeah, this is a British Crop Production Council Stroke Farmers Club seminar, Hugh, focusing on uh, on food security, which, as we know, has risen up the global agenda, the political agenda in recent years with things like climate change, global conflicts and uh, concerns about world trade and supply. And we see in this country that uh, UK consumers are increasingly aware and concerned about food and where it comes from and indeed inflation, yet farmers are regularly getting the lowest returns in the supply chain while shouldering the highest risk. And it was about sort of, you know, how do we square that circle, as it were? The eternal question, Johan, and of course, farmers getting the blame for every ill of the rest of the country and society as well. So tell us, the main speaker here, or the keynote speaker, was was uh, Tim Benton. And um, what was his message, presumably talking about supply chains globally, was it? It was indeed, uh, Professor Tim Benton, a former UK champion for global food security. And he was saying that the challenges that farmers face are only going to get bigger. You know, we know the challenges that smaller family farms perhaps have faced for a number of years. He was saying that it's going to get increasingly difficult for larger producers to compete on these global markets on this world stage because of the challenges that we all face as a as a society things like the covid pandemic russia ukraine he was saying that these could be signs of uh, of things to come and the ability i guess of uk producers to compete on these commodity markets where uh, other countries are, are far larger scale producers and produce food to uh, standards that uh, would quite frankly be illegal in this country uh, yeah and he's presumably he talks about doesn't he a lot of what he said and i saw him at the nfu conference and one of the things there he said was trying to effectively we've got to reshape uh, what we eat and also how we grow it exactly right exactly right and that is a major challenge he was saying that it's almost too big a challenge for the government the government of any political color to address it's simply such a huge problem um, and any other highlights from the conference while you were there we're going to be looking at this uh, next week, Hugh. We're going to be looking more in depth at how farmers can strive to remain profitable. I mean, it's it's, it's easier to do when prices are high, but at the moment we're seeing the, those commodity prices ease again and, uh, and input costs are still stubbornly high. So we're going to be looking at how farmers can remain profitable when markets are less in their favour. And we'll be doing that on the Farmers Weekly podcast next week. Hello, it's Kate from KWS. As we look ahead to field demos this season, for many, it's time to start thinking about variety choice for the autumn. And first in mind, if you're growing winter barley, is what variety to choose to maximise this important part of the rotation. First choice for me is KWS Ferris. This is a six row conventional winter feed barley, which has BYDV tolerance built in. It's a great all round barley package with impressive sixes for rhynchosporium and net blotch, stiff straw and good grain quality. But it is the BYDV tolerance that really makes this a useful variety for all barley growers. With milder winters, bolstering aphid numbers and the threat of rain at key spray timings, a no spray variety like KWS Ferris will help you kick off drilling nice and early with the peace of mind of season long protection against BYDV. For those looking for conventional two row barleys, then KWS TARDIS warrants consideration this autumn. It's the only winter barley on the recommended list with twin eights for standing, making it useful on heavier and more fertile land. It also has a high specific weight with good yields across the regions. 
Not only that, TARDIS has an excellent disease package with one of the best untreated yields and a very high specific weight with low screenings. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. Now, new season nitrogen prices have opened at the lowest level since 2021, following a softening of the market over the past few months. Nitrogen values are being quoted at about £310 to £340 a tonne for delivery until October, but merchants have warned of limited availability for some products. So what's the best way to secure your requirement? We asked three experts. First up, George Badger from Series Rural. It's a tricky one. I've tended to advise people um, buying a bit early each year, and it's one of those things where you probably better off having a strategy and sticking to it i'd say it seems more years that more often than not you get it right by ordering a bit early but i appreciate this year wheat has just dropped 10 pounds a ton this week you do need to be looking at cropping plans for next year uh, running some budgets as to what the likely returns are based on where grain price is um, and I wouldn't necessarily be recommending ordering all of your fertiliser quite so early. Um, ammonium nitrate has come out about £320 a tonne, so it's still slightly more expensive than urea, which is about 345 But we've got to bear in mind next year that uh, we can't use urea, unprotected urea, after the end of March. So se- I've certainly been advising people to take a bit of cover with some ammonium nitrate. I guess um, trying to buy fertiliser when it's at its cheapest is as risky as uh, trying to sell wheat at the top of the market. It's, it's going to be you're gonna, more, more, more by luck than judgment. Yeah, and interestingly, people, uh, I think, are much more emotional about the price of, fertil- of fertiliser that they buy. But actually, for a normal crop of wheat, a £1 per tonne movement in fertiliser, ammonium nitrate, is the equivalent to £8 a tonne, uh, or, or often higher, of, of, of grain price. So you are far better off focusing on getting your grain price selling right um, than buying your fertiliser right. Um, but I don't think people spend eight times as much time on that. That's George Badger from Series Rural. We put the same question to Josh Jerkin, Fertiliser Procurement Manager at the AF Group. So where the nitrogen price has come out, it's about 50% of where it was last year. So many growers have quite wisely taken some cover. That's anywhere really between sort of 30% and 100%. Growers will normally fix some grain sales against it, which I think quite a few have done this year. I know the grain price is sliding in the wrong direction at the minute, but um, I think that's still a, a wise way to do things just to get a bit covered off. Um, but this year, I think, you know, certainly compared to the last couple of years, the, the NITRAM offers for later deliveries has pulled pulled quite a few later buying, certainly of our members, into the fray. So there's been a few a few more taking that first offer, um, whereas normally it might only go to sort of August delivery. It's, it's obviously gone to October. So um, that's pulled quite a few people into, uh, into, into buying this year, um, as I say, taking some cover because they can secure post-harvest delivery. And then even on, you know, the granularly and protected ureas, you know, they're still by far the cheapest option. So there's still some growers locking in uh, for a winter delivery um, because it's about 60% cheaper than this, the peak price last year. And pence per kilo is about 20% cheaper than the nitram. So I think in, in a nutshell, there's, there's been a lot of people taking some cover. Some people have taken a view that look, it's half the price of last year. We know what we want to get. Well, we know what we want. We know we can get it at a very reasonable price compared to last year. So there's been some that, go all out and but like i said it's sort of ranged between 30 to 100 percent in terms of what the cover's been taken by by our members anyway that's josh jerkin so what about suppliers themselves 
Mark Tucker from fertiliser manufacturer Yarra. There are those externalities which we can't predict and nobody would dare forecast. But at the moment, we seem to be in a more settled period. Prices have come back to more normal levels. And I think farmers rightly are looking at them and thinking, yeah, they're worth investing in now. So seeing quite a response to the new season pricing that um, was put out there. We're very much, again, focused on that sulphur area because that's something that um, the season is throwing up. Um, issues in the sense of how farmers have managed their sulphur with deficiencies showing up in crops where perhaps they put one little uh, or one application on early um, and the wet spring that we've had has meant deficiencies are coming through so we've come out with the nitrogen sulphur grades that we have to really emphasize the importance of that but not only the types of there's number of options for farmers but making sure that farmers do consider the approaches that you can take with sulfur by multiple applications being more favourable than single dressings early on, again, mitigating risk of leaching of that sulfur away and therefore not being there when the crop needs it through the sort of full length of the growing season. That's Mark Tucker from Yarra. Fent is renowned for durability, reliability and low cost of ownership. And with our full range available with Fent extended warranty and flexible, affordable solutions from Agco Finance, there's a Fent for every situation. To find out more, contact your local dealer or head to Fent.com. It's Fent because we understand agriculture. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. You're indeed listening to the Farmers Weekly Podcast. A very warm welcome to you wherever you happen to be listening to us from, as we say every time, uh, as we get scarily almost to the middle of the year, which is scaring me more and more. Uh, the cold wind here in the south of the UK doesn't uh, even think about uh, sort of giving up. It carries on. And the maize is just popping out the ground and then going, I want to get back in. What's really interesting, Gohan, is I had a couple of very nice couple of days in uh, rural France, literally just off the boat 50 minutes and not that far down. They too have the lovely cold wind, wind coming down off the um, east cold side of the anti-cyclone, anti-cyclone that we're getting here on the east side of the UK. And in some cases, I would say their maize, normally they're a week or so ahead of us or a week or two ahead of us, their maize is further behind the maize in the south of the UK. So a bit of a weird one going on there. Um, right, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can. It is podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. Uh, emails this week, Johan. Emails, Hugh. You might remember last week we had a story about Cornwall Councillor Nick Craker who submitted and got this uh, this motion passed by the council to source food for council events from local farmers. Well, with an email here from Sarah Lean. I am resident within South Lanarkshire and I'm writing to understand if South Lanarkshire Council are willing to do the same as Cornwall and pledge to support farmers by proactively sourcing local seasonal produce, including meat and dairy, at council events. Sarah says 71% of South Lanarkshire is occupied with agricultural land, so it seems sensible for the council to support those who work in agriculture. I can imagine that a lot of other listeners are thinking the same thing, but that's an email from Sarah Lean in South Lanarkshire, Hugh. 
Yeah, well done, Sarah. Um, it's much the same. Even here, believe it or not, yes, we have farms in Surrey. Even here in the district of Surrey that I live in, about 70-odd percent uh, of the land is uh, farmland as well. And I'm just in the process of composing my uh, representation to the local district council to get them thinking about it as well. And don't forget, if you're in a two-tier area, uh, you want to send it to your district councillor and send it to your county councillor as well, uh, particularly if you're one of them fine, big shires, rural shires like, you know, Shrop. Herefordshire, Yorkshire, obviously Cornwall's done it. So a bit of catching up to do, guys, but we can get there pretty quickly and uh, and keep this wind uh, moving on. And if you go, incidentally, if you go onto the Cornwall Council website, I found, Johan, there's the uh, obviously the meeting notes on there. And it's a very well-produced, uh, you know, motion uh, PDF about all the, about the motion with all the background and all the reasons why they should do it. And it's very well written and it's on the Cornwall Council website uh, from their big council meeting they had the other week. Uh, so you can basically crib on that and use all the data on that to send to your, uh, send to your local council at home. Good call. Right, this week's magazine, Johan, uh, what's going on? With uh, Harvest on its way, Hugh, um, certainly on the horizon, Crop Watch, Patrick Stevenson in Yorkshire reports that the first top three leaves of wheat are free of septoria. Oliver Bennett's further down uh, the east coast in Kent has orns visible on his spring barley. Marcus Mann, who is in Essex, says that uh, yellow rust in untreated susceptible wheat varieties is making an appearance. And Gavin Burrow, who is in Dorset, Hampshire, and Wiltshire, an agronomist covering that area, says weed emergence has been rapid in those maize crops you mentioned earlier on, Hugh. Yeah, and I can imagine some. We've got some weed showing, but uh, yes, with no rain, you're sort of wondering, why did I put all those preems on? But I'm sure it'll all beautifully happen when, in theory, we might get some rain here on about the 12th if that high pressure just nudges a bit to one side and lets the Atlantic win. Uh, Front pages of the Farmers Weekly, or actually the front top of the news agenda in the Farmers Weekly, is this story that was around earlier in the week. I think it was in the Times, uh, the idea that Labour planning to effectively uh, force values down on land sold for housing. Uh, particularly where it's involving with affordable housing. But then as you read down the story, certainly when I read it in the paper earlier in the week, um, it sort of introduces more and more caveats as to where the discount will come from and how big the discount will be, which strikes me that it's a bit of a balloon floating story, this one, Johan, in terms of policy. Uh, something obviously likes the CLA have come out and said this is terrible and shouldn't happen. Um, but uh, yeah, it does strike me as a bit of a, uh, a policy balloon chucked up in the air to see how badly it gets smashed out of the, the air i suppose the bottom line is if they force the value of potential development down so much people will just stop selling it won't it so then you'll build absolutely no houses at all so an interesting one there Johan. on the same page uh, it's that time of year again hugh organized crime gangs in mass gps kit thefts this is uh criminals stealing kits from uh, tractors in the latest high profile theft uh, seven john deere green star tractor domes and seven starfire screens worth seventy thousand pounds altogether was stolen from a farmyard in tame oxfordshire similar incidents in other parts of the country including uh, northumberland so just take them in it, it's, just it's, take them take in them. it's not it, is, it's, how hard it's, is it johan well uh, these these were stolen from a farmyard i mean it, it's time isn't it and uh no 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 no, no sorry the, the seven what is that i mean seven domes at what they're six seven eight grand a dome now or something like that 70 grand 
I mean, 70 grand. a budget for an extra hour a day for each tillage day or each big tractor day, of which there's, what, 120 or 200 in the year max? I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Or review your farmyard security. Put in some, you know, put CCTV in. Put in boundary beams so you know if anyone's coming in and everything lights up. That would be a lot cheaper than the fact that we're all going to have to pile into the insurance premium pot to pay out the 70 grand for the stolen domes and the screens. Is that a viable argument, those, uh, or am I those, just being a utopian here and a bit of a this this farm um, this farm in question? It had CCTV, it had floodlights. The the, uh, the farmer says the thieves knew exactly where they were going, exactly what they were looking for, and where those CCTV cameras and floodlights were placed. But yeah, if you can take them off, please do. And just bear in mind, yes, they do know where that stuff is, and they see it. And just some discreet uh, beams are pretty good. You beams in at, you know, just over fox heights so foxes and deer don't set them off. Um, you, yeah, there are ways and means of doing that. So think about that one as well. Uh, right. What else we got going on? Business pages, wheat price. It's less than 50% almost now of where it was a year ago when that wheat market peaked out in June 22. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Um, and lambs locked in this week. I mean, going up again, averaging 140 quid for a killing lamb, for a fat lamb. I mean, just unreal, uh, unreal values. Big question there, Johan, I suppose, is if we start to see, mind you, if the weather here in the south doesn't warm up and we still get this cold wind, are we going to get a surge of uh, a surge of uh, lambs coming in off the grass? But surely soon, at some point, end of June, July, we start to see that surge of, of milk lambs coming in. Uh, will the lamb tsunami knock the price at the moment? It doesn't look like it is, Johan. Contracting special in the machinery section, Hugh. How to breathe new life into worn-out tractor seats. James Andrews, bouncing around on a clapped-out tractor seat all day, can wreak havoc with the lower back, and he finds out how you can get them working as they should. A bit of reupholstering advice there, Hugh. Uh, very good. Yeah, reupholstering, buying new springs, new dampers. It's not cheap, though, is it, with these big modern tractors? I had to buy an old, a new seat for my old 20-something, 25-year-old uh, tractor the other year, and that was a few hundred quid, but well, five, six hundred quid. But some of these new seats are like two and a half grand, and, and it's, the, it's the dampers and all the stuff that runs that goes that causes the damage. Uh, all the seats are, are the old tractor seats, the covers that you get for like 20 quid they're a quick and easy way of making yourself and your seat think it's all a bit better um there's a lovely piece community pages page 18 uh, matilda bovingdon uh, does a nice piece similar to what we were talking a bit about in the podcast the other week actually when we had the chief exec of british wool on uh talking about different things people are doing with wool um of course the uk is only uh, that's a staggering figure one percent of the global clip so it's a tiny amount yeah it's not making a lot of money at the moment but there are lots of people out there coming up with um different value-added ideas ideas the chimney sheet which is of course the thing you stuff up chimneys to stop drafts and uh, we featured that on the podcast uh, about 18 months or so ago i think uh, so it's a lovely idea but some other potentially big mainstream ideas as well that's in matilda's article on page 18 of this week's magazine good to hear some useful ideas there for wool hugh when the wool market is low what are the rest of the markets doing thank you very much yo had the finished deer dead weight price this week back a uh, very very small amount point uh, two of a penny uh, to 493.7 the live weight sqq for cattle goes up to 278.2 up from 272 last week uh, on to the sheep rings and prices there actually from the highs we reported last week it's in the market pages of the managed 
Management uh, magazine talking about highs in the market. But actually, if you look at the data to Wednesday, it's actually come back slightly. Uh, so the deadweight SQQ for the UK uh, was 732.9. That's back from 742.9 last week. And then the uh, live weight uh, SQQ 343.2. Uh, that's back about 8p uh, on the week from last week. Uh, onto the arable markets and some uh, some easing continues there, I'm afraid, if you're um, looking at your arable co- crops thinking how wonderful they're going to be. Uh, feed, wheat, feed wheat is back uh, to £160.60. and 60p, so That's back about another seven quid on the week. Uh, milling wheat back to 237.70. Uh, uh, so that's changed only by about 10p. That, so that sort of stood on almost. Uh, feed barley, that's back though. Uh, back about uh, six or so quid to £148. £147.80, uh, sorry. Um, so back just under six quid. All seed rate, that drops back again about £7 on the week to 307.80 compare that to a year ago when all seed rate was 77460 it's scary isn't it um feel uh, feed peas stand on at 234 and feed beans stand on at 228 um and, and diesel prices actually edged up a little bit this week uh, based on the ring round on Wednesday morning a liter of red diesel will cost you 67.9 pence uh, so that is up 0.6 of a penny, 67.9 pence is this week's diesel price. Right, talking about diesel and tractors, uh, Massey Ferguson have this week unveiled that they are returning to the Lama show. They've been absent for about nine years. And when they left the show, they sort of said we can spend the money better elsewhere promoting our product. But it seems they have decided to return. And joining me now is the brand manager of Massey Ferguson in the UK. Ireland and the Middle East, William Judge. William, why have you sort of changed tack on this? Uh, I think, Hugh, to be honest, we've had a few uh, few different mindsets, and I think there's probably three items that have driven us this way. One, customers. Our customers have certainly requested uh, to see us more at shows, more physically within the UK. Um, so that's definitely driven us. Our dealer network um, have asked us, you know, to, to get back at some of our, some of the national shows, and Lama was there was the top on the request. And last but not least, we have some some new and exciting products to show, and I'm sure uh, our customers and some competitive customers are quite keen to see them. And does that mean a change to your marketing elsewhere? Because it's not cheap going to Lama, is it? It's not. You're 100% correct. Um, but no, we haven't decided to, to move money from one department into another. We've sort of reallocated how we might do things inside the business. But we see this as being something that, that's crucial enough just for us, for I guess for the industry, as I say, for our customers and for sort of the agricultural environment in general. And currently in terms of sales, obviously the last 18 months really have been pretty exceptional, well, actually two, three years, what with COVID uh, and then all that's gone on in the last year with Ukraine and inflation. What's your order book looking like now and, and what are the prospects for this year? I think the balance of the year is looking strong. We, we've had a good order book. We still have a good order book, albeit it has slowed down a little bit. But equally, when you're looking at 18-month lead times, it's very exceptional. It shouldn't be like that. So, yeah, it, it has cooled off. But there's still, you know, there's still good sentiment. We've spent this week spending a lot of time with some farmers just traveling around and just getting the general feeling. And in general, farmers are still in good mood. Um, agriculture is still in a good position. So, albeit it might cool a little bit, but it's cooling from some pretty lofty heights. 
So, uh, yeah, we're still very confident. And how does your um, supply chain look now in terms of lead time on specifically on tractors? On tractors, lead time depends on the model, but if you place uh, some higher spec Dyna-VT models, yeah, you are looking into 2024, probably the end of Q1 at that. Some other ranges, uh, out of our Shangzhou plant, let's say, you can get tractors from there pretty much Q4 this year. So we've had a good enough run. We've been very fortunate as well in that we've really got on top of our suppliers. So from a componentry perspective, we've really come to terms with that. And it's, that has helped us a lot. The Bovey plant has done an exceptional job of getting tractors out for our customers. So, um, yeah, we've got a good handle of things. We've become very adaptable and moved from what we were perhaps used to. And, and where do you see that lead time going eventually? Is there a target that you want to get to? Well, realistically, the factory likes it as long as possible because it's fixed. It's good for them. You know, they, they know exactly what models are coming. But from a retail point of view, realistically, I guess if it's at a three to six months, that means you can build tracks for people in a realistic time. But a three to six month lead time, depending on the range, is what we sort of look for. That's William Judge, the brand manager at Massey Ferguson for the UK, Ireland and the Middle East. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, what are the real voting intentions of rural England? We often assume that it's a very conservative part of the electorate. But according to the latest opinion poll carried out exclusively across rural English constituencies, the reality is something more towards the centre of the political divide. The Conservative Party have lost 18% of the vote since the last election, according to the study, but are still the leading party amongst rural voters, with 41% of the vote and Labour coming second with 36% of the vote. The poll was carried out by the CLA, and earlier I spoke to their external affairs director, Jonathan Roberts. In in this particular poll of rural England, what we've discovered is that there is a step shift, really, in voting intention. The Conservatives uh, have lost about 18 polling points since uh, the last general election, and almost exclusively those votes are going to the Labour Party. So, and, and is that being um, shown across all of the English constituencies, or is it? Is it? Does it vary by area? No, I, I think it's pretty pretty consistent. Now, you could say that there's a number of uh, a, a wider re- reasons for that that have got nothing to do with rural affairs. You know, we've got we've had the same party in government for 13 years. Uh, there's probably a hangover from some of the. Um, political maelstrom that we had when Liz Truss was Prime Minister briefly last year, uh, as well as the continued hangover from things like COVID and, 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 and so on. But I think if we're all entirely honest with ourselves, it's very difficult to see any one political party that is really grasping the nettle of unlocking the extraordinary potential of the rural economy. We know that there are various reasons why uh, the countryside is being held back from achieving its economic potential. We've got this appalling planning system. We've got poor infrastructure, an outdated approach to housing, um, you know, very poor connectivity in many parts of the country, as well as the changes that are going on in farming. And w- without a robust and ambitious plan for unlocking that potential, I think all political parties are going to suffer. What struck me as well was um, you're talking about Labour having a big lead in terms of people's opinions. But one of your questions was, you know, 
which party you know does this party xyz party um understand rural issues and it's interesting that the labor score on that was only a few points behind the conservative score on that um and that's given the fact that there's a lot of doubts on the labor manifesto in terms of you know on farmers particularly whether we're talking about tb control or or, or rights of way reform yeah, so I think you know, the, the Conservatives are still in the lead, I should say, by, by 41% to 36%. It's interesting that though the collapse in Conservative support seems to have all gone entirely to the Labour Party for two reasons. One is that we know that the Liberal Democrats, for example, are typically uh, seen as the alternative party of the countryside. Um, uh, but, but, but also the Labour Party you know, hasn't really done much, you might say, to deserve that that. that um, that bounce, particularly when it comes to rural affairs, you know, they talk about uh, the right to roam, which is obviously a concern to a lot of people uh, in the countryside. They don't have much of a history when it comes to rural policy. It's not in their DNA. And in fact, if you talk to Labour MPs, they uh, are, are battling not just typically with a bit of a lack of knowledge and a lack of experience when it comes to rural issues, but they're also battling with the fact that within the Labour Party there are there are campaign groups and pressure groups that are very very ideological and very left wing who you know don't much seem to like um, the countryside. So even our, even our most uh, your prolific supporters within the Labour Party are having to act as a sort of barrier to some of those campaign groups from taking hold in Labour Party policy. But, you know, we say to Keir Starmer, we say to uh, the Prime Minister too, and, and leaders of all um, uh, 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 all parties, that there is an immense opportunity for you, not just electorally, but economically as well. If you sit down, if you look at the facts, if you look at, uh, if you start developing policy that is rooted in a deep and meaningful understanding of rural issues as they are, not just as you know, more urban-minded people perceive them to be, then there's an immense opportunity for um, economic development. You know, I've been on your podcast before talking about how forty-three billion pounds of economic um, activity could be unlocked with the right policies. But then uh, 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 the more you allow entrepreneurs to to thrive and rural communities to thrive, the more they're likely to gravitate towards you. It's just really about getting those political leaders to really understand in their bones what that opportunity is for them. And where does the the, the Lib Dems, because you said there that the Lib Dems are obviously perceived as the second alternative to the countryside after the Conservatives, but they're polling, their polling has gone back. And actually, when you ask the question of your your sample group, you know, do they understand the issues of the countryside, they score the worst as well. So they're sort of very much left at sea here, aren't they? Yeah, it really is interesting. And I think a, a lot of people are concerned the way in which you know very sort of urban left leaning thinking has you know, still dominates part of the liberal democrats as well as um as well as uh, the, the labor party uh, everybody in my experience in rural uh, areas respects the importance of the environment of um uh, protecting and 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 restoring nature yeah, and 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 so on, but I think all too often with some of those left-leaning parties, 
they're not doing enough to actually listen to what people in the countryside are actually thinking. It's much more of a top-down, almost imposition of an ideology or a certain way of thinking on the countryside and uh, perhaps projecting onto those rural voters what they are thinking. So it really just comes down to better engagement. And by the way, this works for the Conservative Party as well. They, they need to spend um, more time uh, listening to the full kind of diversity of opinion that there is among people who live in the countryside, but also recognising that the countryside isn't a museum, which is something that I think sometimes the uh, Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats can be guilty of. It, it, the countryside will die if it becomes a place where people who made a lot of money in cities just go to retire. Um, it will die if uh, young families are priced out of uh, these areas. Um, and, and the countryside will die if entrepreneurs aren't given the kind of business environment that they need to thrive. So until there is that real understanding from political parties that you know, the countryside is a complex thing, it's a complex set, set of communities with different ideals and different values, but also different opportunities, and develop a, a policy framework that reflects that diversity and those those um, the, you know, those different interests then we're going to be talking about the same thing in decades to come without any improvement. That's Jonathan Roberts, the External Affairs Director at the CLA. So Hugh, the Tories have taken a beating when it comes to countryside and uh, farming policies over recent years, but they're still ahead in the polls. Yeah, they're just ahead in the polls. I mean, they've lost 18 points uh, based on the poll uh, at the last election. Uh, so this is the first time CLA have done, you remember last year we featured a CLA poll which was talking about the five most rural counties in the UK. What they've done with this poll is effectively it's all of rural, uh, sorry, that was in England, and this is all of rural England. So I'm afraid this doesn't, apologies to colleagues in, in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, this doesn't include any of the parties there. So this is rural constituencies in England uh, and it shows that basically since the last election in 19, the Tories have lost 18% of the vote, uh, puts them on about 41%. Labour sat at about 36%. And then the Lib Dems, I think, are down there at about 11%. They've gone back. Uh, Labour have come up about 14 Tories have gone back 18 uh, The Lib Dems have gone back about 3 Greens have come up 2 and the others go back 3 um, So, yeah, it's it, there's no surprise there. But I think what it tells you is that the sentiment within rural voters – it's probably not as right-leaning as some might, or certainly some in the urban uh, world of policy-making and decision-making might like to think. Uh, and also what it tells you, I think, is that there's a, you know, it's still a big market to play for in terms of policies that may or may not be out there for rural communities. 18 points, though, Hugh. That is a big, uh, that's a big drop, you know. No room for complacency. No, there's no room for complacency. And of course, it's, it's, you know, and the thing is, when you think about it, and we said this when we did the poll, I think it was last January, uh, when we talked about the, the, the poll last year, um, Labour have got that 36% versus the Tories 41%. Now, the Tories obviously are in power and they've rolled out um, policies, they've rolled out things we've seen and 
SFI to do with farmers. And obviously, farmers are only a very small part of those rural communities. Labour haven't rolled out anything, have they? There's been no offer other than obviously we just talked about the fact that they might hammer land values um, if people tried to develop it. But there's been no full-on, you know, shop front. Even when Keir Starmer came to the NFU conference back in February, you know, he just basically was making friends and saying he will do all he can to do logical uh, policy making, but didn't actually say what those policies were. When challenged on policies like right to roam or um, TB control, uh, it's all that we'll listen and we'll come to a conclusion in our manifesto. So there's no actual offer, and yet they've got that lead. Or not that lead, but they've got that strong thing, and the Tories have seen that big drop. Still a bit of time to go. We are expecting an election next year. It'll be interesting to see what those manifestos do pledge. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, as you heard in the audio, Jonathan saying there is, and he's absolutely right, and, and, and you know, hats off to CLA, because okay, I'm a CLA member, I'm an NFU member, and the CLA really do push this rural powerhouse idea. You know, we obviously, we're talking about farming presumably, aren't we, and land management, but actually when you look at it in the context of rural rural communities and the rural economy, you know, farming accounts for very few of the businesses in those rural communities, and it's barely 4% of the economic turnover of those rural communities, and we forget that. It's very important to us, obviously, because we're all farmers, there is loads that can be done um, to really kickstart those rural communities, to really get them away. You know, when I was in, as I alluded to earlier, I was in rural France. Well, it was rural France. I was only 50 minutes from Calais, down in the part de Calais, just down near sort of around the 2K Montreux, around there. Where I was was pretty rural in a converted cow shed. I had 300 meg on the internet, asymmetric. So that's 300 meg up and 300 meg down on a ping of less than like one or two milliseconds. Wherever I went, I had a 5G signal on my on my phone. I mean, at the moment, the network I'm on over here at the moment is awful. And yet I go to France and it's phenomenal. It's things like that. It's trying to kickstart that potential rural economy, which is, you know, it's there, but it could be so much better. And that wouldn't just be good for, you know, it wouldn't be good for rural communities and people. It'd be good for our farm businesses if there's loads going on rurally because we're either renting buildings out, part of that, doing whatever. So there is loads of potential here. I just hope that some of these political parties pick up that potential and put it in their manifesto let's get it out there now start talking to your local representatives about it what are you going to do about it at the next election what stall are you going to set out and you never know we may end up with a decent set of full-on rural policies in the manifestos due out next year as opposed to the usual blurb of oh we'll do the best for farmers and we'll do the best for rural communities and we'll do the best for the environment which quite frankly you know in most cases meaningless the farmers weekly podcast now the cereals event takes place next week on the 13th and 14th of june it's visiting a new venue for the first time in nottinghamshire olivia cooper joins me now who works on the show tell us more about this new venue olivia what can we expect it's a really nice site actually it's it's very pretty it's not at all like the lincolnshire and cambridgeshire sites which are sort of very flat um sort of arable landscapes it's slightly rolling it's on the edge of sherwood forest uh, near nottingham and it's got it's it's actually very pretty so it's it's exciting to be at a new site and tell us about what's actually going on obviously the show's got loads of exhibitors and then you guys are busy producing other content as well for people to attend on the day i think the new venue has actually been very attractive to people we've got 144 new exhibitors um it's a 30 percent larger site so it covers 60 hectares 
so we've got the opportunity to expand the content, to have more demonstrations, uh, more seminars, more stages. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot more going on. And some of the seminars, can you tell us um, who you've got in your program? Because you've been busy organising that yourself. Can you tell us who's who's in your seminar programme? We've got several different stages this year. We've got the Ag Analyst Academy. So that's all about making precision farming pay, trying to show how arable farmers can adopt precision farming and actually make it benefit the bottom line. Uh, so that should be some really, we've got some very interesting people there, people like Clive Blacker, Mark Harriman. On the main stage, we have all the usual sort of political and technical seminars. So we've got uh, Minette Batters coming along to a session with Mark Spencer, which is actually going to be chaired by Abby Kay. So that'll be a really interesting opportunity for the audience to quiz the political leaders. Then we've got sessions on collaborating for business success. We've got seminars looking at great soils and regenerative techniques. All of the seminars will have a mixture of of real farmer input and expert and research uh, professionals. So it's, it's going to be very muddy boots feel to the event. We've got a new stage called the Serials Stories stage this year, and that brings together uh, a mixture of Uh, social media stars like Ollie Harrison, who has been driving his combine from Land's End to John O'Groats to raise awareness of men's suicide. So the combine is going to be there at Serials. We've also got people like pig farmer Flavian Obiero. We've got some people talking about the fundraiser. So half of all ticket sales will go towards a charity again this year. And the charity chosen this year is quite close to the host farmer's heart. It's the Multiple System Atrophy Trust. And there will be a couple of people coming along and telling their stories about how this disease uh, affects people. Why the Wurzels coming, Olivia? I think that might be slightly my fault. Uh, so we we had a meeting, well, we had an evening when we were staying up at the site with the event organiser, Ali McIntyre, and we were talking about how we could do something fun to raise money for the charity. And I love the Wurzels, and I said, we should get the Wurzels along. Now, Ali is American, and she had no idea who I was talking about. So, of course, we did some obligatory YouTube videos and... Um, a great evening was had, and I didn't actually think we'd get them along. So I'm I'm delighted that they've agreed, and it will be it will be great fun. That's Olivia Cooper from the Serials event. A new venue, Hugh. It'll be uh, interesting to see how that's uh, received by the arable farming world. Uh, yeah, do you know it should be good. Uh, it's a new venue, Thorsby Estate, on the edge of the Sherwood Forest in Nottinghamshire. Um, so possibly slightly more central than the sort of previous Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire sites. Um, 140 new exhibitors you heard in the audio. So yeah, no, it should be good. It'll be interesting, and it, and it's you know it's a different landscape. It's not in sort of flat flat arable land it's in a slightly more rolling sort of not i don't know let's see it looks good uh, all the details of the show which is of course on the tuesday the 13th and wednesday the 14th of june so that's the week after next uh, all the details and tickets and all that data uh, is at uh, serialsevent.co.uk so have a look in there if you are interested and we'll look forward to seeing you there we will indeed uh, next week on the farmers weekly podcast you will be looking at how farmers including arable farmers Farmers can remain profitable or at least strive to remain profitable as commodity prices continue to ease. 
Yeah, it could be uh, yeah scary times at the moment. Um, also, we're going to be speaking to... We promoted this the other day, actually, uh, but then we didn't come off. But it's all done now. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, this vet attestation, which is basically uh, making sure you've had a vet on your farm if any of the animals you're going to sell are going to go uh, have the vet on your farm at least once a year, if any of the animals you're going to sell are going to end up in the European market. And this is going to be potentially a huge deal, particularly, I think, to the sheep sector and the cattle sector as well, um, particularly if you're not farm assured. Uh, So listen in for that next week on the Farmers Weekly Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can. It is podcast at fwi.co.uk. If you want to comment on anything we've talked about this week uh, or indeed just have a general rant at us about something, please do. It's podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. It will be great to hear from you. But in the meantime, this has been the Farmers Weekly Podcast for yet another week. I'm Hugh Brown. Until next week, goodbye. And I'm Johan Tasker. Goodbye.